Storms upon the Mediterranean Sea can grow, and at this point it had grown to a large state in which this rather large vessel suddenly found itself sopped with waves and storm clouds. The lightning was bursting all around them, and the hundred men upon this boat, probably in a great panic at that point, as they were sailing out in in the middle of the Mediterranean with no land in sight, and this storm banging and pounding them into the, ground, into the ocean waves. As they're sitting there bobbing up and down like a cork, they're wondering, are we going to sink? What is going on? And they start in their panic, turning around, and the captain says, I don't know what you're doing, but right now pray to your gods if you have them, and we need to shout out to them now. And so suddenly the people gather down, they're praying, they're shouting, they're doing everything they can, but the storm is still raging. It's still getting worse until finally they start jettisoning their cargo overboard. And it continues to blow. The wind continues to blow. And I can imagine this one guy finally gets down into the hold, down into the bottom of the entire boat. And there they find one more person asleep at the bottom of the hold, grabbing some things. They probably kicked him, punched him, did something to wake him up and said, get up. Do you not care that we're drowning? Pray to your gods. And this man, this grizzly beard and Ugly tunic pulls up out of the bed, out of the bed, and looks around and says, "What's going on?" Sees that this array of everything, and instantaneously realizes he's the fault. As they pull him up to the top, and he's questioned by the captain, he's saying, "Who are you? What's going on?" He says, "I'm a prophet of Israel. My name is Jonah. I'm on this journey because I'm disobeying God, and I'm going away." And and and, and they're they're freaked out. They're like, "What do you mean you're disobeying your God? Why would you do such a thing?" And he says, hey, if you want this to end, just throw me over the side and the storm will subside. It'll go away. You'll be fine. And they don't want to do that at first. And so they start rowing and rowing and rowing against the wind. And they can't win. They can't get out of this storm. It continues to pummel them. They're about to lose their lives. And they finally decide, fine, it's one man for the rest. They take Jonah and they throw him out over the side. And he lands in the water and the storm quickly subsides. In the meantime, Jonah was either grabbing onto something and holding on, but it's more likely he lost track of time. He's eventually exhausted, couldn't tread water anymore, and begins to sink into the water. And it says in the scriptures that God called a great fish that came, swam, swallowed him up, and moved him forward. And in three days and three nights later, spit him out on the shores near Israel, where God said again, go to Nineveh, preach this message Stop not listening to me. Reluctantly, Jonah gets up, goes to Nineveh, preaches a great revival, breaks out, and he climbs up on the hill watching this revival, expecting God to full well blow them up uh, and just blow them to smithereens out of his justice and gets bitter and angry in his racism against the Assyrians that God wasn't bringing them justice. And the book closes with God's rebuke. We probably know about the book of Jonah because Jonah changed his mind. But isn't this one of those stories that, to be honest, as Christians, we're a little ashamed of? In a modern setting, in a modern time period, a lot of Christians have actually backed away from the book of Jonah and said, oh, it's probably a parable because we can't handle the idea of a man being swallowed by a fish and living. We can't handle this idea of a storm subsiding suddenly because a man's thrown over the side. Too many miracles. It's just way too much. Besides, you know, crazy Uncle Joe always throws Jonah and the big whale in your face. Isn't that true? Sitting there at the dinner table with Thanksgiving, Christmas, or whatever. Oh, yeah, you Christian, you believe yeah, people get swallowed by whales. You know, Pinocchio story, whatever it is. And the reality is, is that a lot of people back away from it because of the pressure. But I want to challenge that because I'm uncomfortable with that fact. 
Because if you'll look at it and you'll examine the actual scriptures, you begin to realize that Jesus didn't believe this was a story at all. In fact, what Jesus does, he does something incredible with the story. With this one miracle that so many of us are embarrassed with, he, in his conversations about miracles, focused in on it. In fact, here in the book of Matthew, it, it says that there are some so the scribes and Pharisees that came up to him and said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, this is snarky. We don't read this snarky, but it's snarky. Because the Pharisees and the scribes had already seen Jesus do tons of miracles, They'd seen him cast out demons. They'd seen him send them into, send them into pigs, all this stuff. And they're like, and they go, you, you cast out demons by the prince of demons. You, you do it by the devil, Satan himself. That's what you're possessed of. That's how you get through this. They saw him miraculously heal hands, make people walk and send them home. And they step back and they would go, this is Sabbath. God doesn't work on the Sabbath. What's your problem and so for all of us who would love, love our, our crazy Uncle Joes or whatever to see a miracle so we can just prove them wrong and we assume, man, don't you assume if somebody just saw a miracle, they would, they would convert immediately be like, God exists, this must be true. Anybody feel like that? And yet what happens is the Pharisees prove us wrong. They see miracle after miracle after miracle and they go like, this is ridiculous. And finally they walk up to Jesus and they say, fine, show us a sign, give us a miracle. And Jesus answered in this, and even an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay, Jesus, what do you mean, sign of the prophet Jonah? What sign? You know, like Jonah's running away from God, so the Pharisees are being rebuked here because they're not listening to God. They're focused on the law and they're rejecting the Messiah. That sounds like a good rebuke. Yeah, we like that one. No, that's not what he's saying. Okay, so the, the sign of the prophet Jonah, you mean, the, you mean like where he gets there's great revival breaks out, but he's bitter in his heart because he's got racism and he's, he's eliminating people from the gospel, just like the, the Pharisees were doing that to the Gentiles and the other people. They were saying, we're the centerpiece and we're all that and a bag of chips. And he's like, he could have rebuked them with that. Nope, that's not what he was doing. Of all the things he could have taken from the book of Jonah that applies to the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus focuses in on this. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He suddenly turns the story of Jonah, what would be an esoteric, interesting tale in the Old Testament. He says, you want to know what's central in your faith, Christians? You want to know what is the only sign you give to skeptics when you're out there talking about it? Here's the miracle you focus on. Of all the, all the healings, of all the sea walking and, and the calming of storms and all this stuff, focus on this one, Jonah. Anybody want to touch that? Jonah? Yes, because while it's semi-cryptic in the way that he spoke it here, we know after the resurrection what he was saying is the centerpiece is a miracle. The centerpiece of Christianity is not the teachings of Jesus. It's not his wonderful mercy and compassion. It is not his care for the poor. The centerpiece of all of Christianity resides on a miracle, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus in this verse says, you want a sign, guys? I'll give you a sign that I'm the king. I'll give you a sign of the kingdom of God. I'll show you the greatest miracle that's possible. It's the resurrection itself. And he dives in. And at that moment, he suddenly brings about a focus that's never been seen before, a focus on one historical event. Guys, this is really an Easter message. Let's be honest with ourselves. It was like, shouldn't you be preaching this on Easter? What, are you going to be in Thailand? No, I'll, I'll be here for Easter. But what I'm doing is I want to prep you guys. I want to encourage you guys with a thought. 
Some of you in this, in this room are, are, are probably not yet Christians. You're, you're thinking through this. You've been invited. You come to church because your wife or, your, or, or your, your spouse brought you or yeah, you got your kids and you want them to be, to be raised in good, wholesome teachings like you were. But, but you don't believe this stuff. You're kind of like, I've never had an experience of God. I, really, I don't really have that. Well, I want to challenge you this morning. I want to make you think about something. The centerpiece of Christianity, the biggest move, religious movement in the world is centered around this sign of Jonah. Some of you are brand new Christians, and you've just begun this journey, and you're like, yeah, Jesus saved me from my sins. You've had a massive, powerful transformation of your heart and your life. You love Christ, and, you, and, and yet if somebody asks you, you're just not sure how to, how to make it clear, how to land the plane in a sense, and yet Jesus tells you right now, here's what you found your faith in. You want something that makes it strong. It's not going to be your experience. It's not going to be anything else. It's going to be this sign. And for the rest of us Christians who are all like, yeah, another, uh, another uh, resurrection thing, yeah, Greg, you've done this before. Uh, this is just going to be repeat. Yes, it is. Because it ought to be so motivating and so building a fuel in your life that you and I wouldn't hesitate but to get out there to bring our friends to know Jesus Christ because you and I would cease to be worried whether our opinion is going to be rejected. Like we walked up to our friends and said, I want to tell you something life-changing. Well, what's that? Thrifties, ice cream, especially mint and chip, is the greatest in the world. You're an idiot. No, I feel bad. No, that's not what this is about. This isn't an opinion about ice cream. It's a fact of history that has to be either disputed and dealt with or completely rejected because they're unwilling to. And what we're going to look at are the four evidences this morning that nail in the fact that this sign, this event, this miracle is the miracle of miracles. We, we've talked about miracles We've looked at it and we said, hey, this universe has not been set up, spun, and walked away from by some God. He, he's not the deist God who just let it go and let it happen. No, he is the God who's in control of everything. He's got it in his hand. He upholds it by the word of his power. And occasionally, on an uncommon event, he likes to reach in and do something drastic and dramatic we call a miracle. It's uncommon, and when that happens, he's trying to get us to sit up and pay attention because he's trying to tell us something. He's telling us something about a kingdom that he's already he's brought, a kingdom in which there is no sin, no death, no mourning, and no pain, a kingdom in which he's conquered these things so that we do not have to experience them forever, a kingdom in which we know God, and he is our king, and we walk with him. The kingdom of God is what he's expressing as we saw last week. And now, what is the greatest expression except this, the resurrection, the entrance sign, the proof that you and I are not just playing games with God? So let's look at this. What are these four evidences? These four special evidences, in fact, are important. And I want you to grab a pen while I'm giving you this setup because you need to have these. If you don't have this written down, if you don't have this prepared in your life, and you sit down at that table to invite somebody to, to come to church for Easter, or you're hanging out with some friend, you're finally like, yeah, I got to tell you a secret, I'm a Christian, you know, because you've been hiding it. And they're going to go, why are you a Christian? You're going to have an answer, and you're going to have some defense, because the reality is these four evidences that pinpoint the center of your faith need to be, you need to know them, because they're understood and agreed upon by the vast majority of scholars. Let me explain what I mean by the vast majority of scholars. I mean, thousands and thousands of scholars agree of these four evidences Maybe five to ten don't. So when somebody tries to throw zeitgeist in your face, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, don't worry about it. If somebody tries to throw in your face, oh, Jesus didn't exist, they're agreeing with ten or less scholars 
out in the university systems in the world. Whether they're theologians, historians, whether they're archaeologists, those people, liberal who do not believe in Christianity or agreed in our position and believe in Christianity, agree with these four evidences. And if you have these down, you're with the majority. And these are the four evidences that we look at. The first one is that Jesus died on the cross. Say, that doesn't seem like evidence, Greg. That seems like a junior high statement. Duh, right? Jesus died on the cross, except for the fact that people dispute this. And yet it's strange to dispute this fact that Jesus died on the cross. You see, hundreds of thousands of people have died on crosses in history. In the Roman Empire alone, thousands upon thousands of people died on crosses every year. And it's because this was the, the torture device of the rebel. They would take entire armies and crucify them after they won. The Romans were great at this. They had adapted crucifixion from the Assyrians who had invented it from a stake in which they would nail you to just one straight stake and you would just hang there until, the, until you were either rotten or dead. That, that was their version. And the Romans come along and say, we could improve that. I don't know why they were thinking that, but that's what they thought. And they come up and they create what we know as the Roman cross. It's a capital T cross. They had several versions. They had the Roman cross, the capital T cross. They had the, the X cross in which you would basically, it was the first cross fit ever. And you sat there, brought out like this, and they would nail you in this manner so you had very little leverage. Or you had the lowercase T cross that you see in churches. Likely Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, a capital T cross. It's debated because we like to debate funny things like that. But the reality is that he was crucified. And he wasn't the only one crucified that day. Two others were crucified with him. Shortly later, a few, a few decades later, hundreds of people would be crucified in a rebellion. The Romans perfected crucifixion. They knew how to torture you with it. They knew how to make you die a long, arduous, suffering death. And these guys were experts. They knew when you were dead. And you did not survive crucifixion very easily. A few, there are cases in history of people who do, but not after you've been flogged, mocked, beat, and then crucified as Jesus was. And Jesus finds himself hanging on this cross, and he's dead. And we know he's dead, not just because of the historical information, but because one of the eyewitnesses who was present at the time wrote it down. His name was John. John, who later we know as the Apostle John, doesn't mean he's biased. He's just writing what he said he saw. And in this case, he says this, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, meaning he died. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And so right here, is, it's, it's the high day. It's a special preparation day for their New Year's, their Passover day, in which they're going to celebrate Passover. They're going to celebrate this wonderful time in event where ex, the Exodus happened and Egypt, Egypt let the Israelites go and God won. They said, we don't want guys hanging on crosses as we prepare our lambs. We don't want guys hanging on crosses while we're eating with our kids in, in the homes. Get these guys killed quickly, bring them down, bury them, let's get this over with. So they said, okay, cool. And the, one, the way they did that, they would take a large, massive sledgehammer, and they'd walk up to you while you were hanging there, and they'd just crack you straight across your legs right there, right through your shins, snapping them in half while alive, still hanging on a cross with you know, nine-inch nails hanging through right about here so that no bones were broken, but, you know, you sever the nerve there. Ever hit your funny bone real hard? Real hard? Imagine having that every time you pull on your arms. 
So your legs are broken. You have no leverage. You're either going to pull on these arms, which are massively burning, to get a breath. And basically, it's the speed-up version of how to die. Massive amounts of shock, blood loss, amount of pain, everything. And these guys are going to die quickly. So they come up, and the soldiers come and break the legs of the first. And then this other who had been crucified with them, number two. Then they come to Jesus. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. You say, well, how do the Romans know he was dead? Okay, the Romans know when somebody's dead. They, they came up with the terms rigor mortis and all the, different rig, all the different mortises that we know of, and whether the stiffening of the body. They understood a guy was dead, but they, they, they go ahead and check, and they do an autopsy. But one of the soldiers pierced the side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, I don't want to offend anybody, and some people are against hunting, but I want to explain something that is like a necessary piece involved when you do hunting. And that is after the animal has been shot, you one, don't want them running away from you and all that stuff because you don't want to track it. You don't want it to suffer. You want a good, clean shot where the animal is dead. Now, in order to check so you don't get your head kicked off or attacked yourself, you approach the animal and you poke it in the eye. It's part of the rules in order to ensure that the animal is dead. It's the most sensitive part. If there is life in that, in that animal, it will kick. It will act. It will respond. There is no life in the animal. It will not. This is exactly what they're doing with Jesus. Notice you get more queasy in our culture about a dead animal than about dead Jesus. Anybody just notice that real quick? Anyway, just, just pointing it out. And, and so they took this spear and they literally drove it up under here. Now that is going to get your reaction. He's stretched out. He's filleted on the back. They poke him. No response. They drive it in. And as they pull it out, out does not come blood, as you would expect only, but blood and water. And then John's like, I swear this is true. I saw it. My testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe. Why? Because it's odd that blood and water would flow out. What's with the water? There's some speculations all throughout centuries what theologically that means and stuff. J. Warner Wallace, who is a, um, who is a cold case uh, police officer, detective, and a homicide detective in L.A., um, came to Christ and wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. In it, he talks about this moment and the observation of this moment, and he says this, of the blood and water. It's an important observation. Given that the gospel writers were not coroners or medical doctors, when people are injured to the point of death, for example, Jesus was flogged and then crucified, they often enter into some form of circulatory shock prior to dying. This can sometimes result in increased fluid in the membrane surrounding the heart or increased fluid in the membrane surrounding the lungs. While the gospel writers might expect to see blood, and their observation of the water is somewhat surprising. It is certainly consistent with the fact that Jesus was already dead when stabbed. People say, oh, he died of a broken heart. Basically, his system overloaded to the point that the blood and the water coagulated, and now... There it comes. He was already dead. We, just out of the cherry on top that every historian in the time period knew, that knew about this event said, Jesus died on the cross. All five that we know of that are not Christians outside of the biblical eyewitness accounts. And so scholars agree, Jesus is dead, except for a few. The vast majority of thousands of scholars go, Jesus died on that cross. 
You go, why, why do you need to bring that up? Because there's some people who claim he didn't. We'll capture that in a second, at the end here. But let's keep moving. Because the second evidence I want you to write down, and if you're a doodler, just you can draw a cross at the first one. And the second one is, is you can draw an empty tomb, just a big circle and a light coming out or whatever you want. But the tomb was empty. And this is an evidence. People go, this is most disputed. But the bottom line is, it's really hard to dispute it when you start to put the pieces together. The tomb had to be empty. First of all, is, is just the basic fact of what the people who didn't want Christianity to succeed said. In the book of Matthew, it's recorded that there were these people, these Roman guards. Now, the Roman guards had shown up to a tomb and to guard the tomb, sealed the tomb on purpose. And people always like to say, oh, they didn't know what tomb it was. It's like they walked up and got the wrong number. This is 13114 instead of 14113. You know, whatever. It wasn't that way in the ancient days. People owned tombs. They were family tombs. And Joseph of Arimathea, who they knew by name, along with a guy named Nicodemus, who was part of the ruling council of Israel, gathered Jesus' body and put it in this tomb. They knew exactly where it was. So did the rulers. So they put a guard on it because they knew Jesus had said, hey, you know the sign of Jonah? That's going to happen. And they were like, yeah, right. These disciples are going to fabricate something. We better go guard this tomb. So they put a a group of guards in front of that tomb. And as the, as the night rolled along, the, the tomb opened, Jesus came out, the angels showed up, the guards freaked out, got knocked down. They wake up the next morning, the disciples are there going, it's empty, running away. And the guards are like, we're doomed because they lost what they were guarding. That means their lives were forfeit. So while they were going, the disciples were leaving. Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave him sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, just tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. Here you go, here's some money, hush money. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has spread among the Jews to this day. The disciples stole the body. I'm not interested in in the story of whether the disciples stole the body or not. I'm interested in what it implies. Work with me here for a second. On one side, you have the disciples saying, the tomb is empty, Jesus rose. On the other side, you have the people, they're not saying, the tomb's not empty, here's the body. You went to the wrong one. The guard said you weren't there. Nope, they say, yeah, the tomb is empty, you stole it. Both agree on the basis that the tomb is empty. Whether for or against, the earliest stories about what was believed to have happened to the body of Jesus all agree the tomb is empty. It's important to know because here's a man who's died. We know the tomb is empty. Besides, how do you stop a movement? You have, how do you start a movement like somebody's risen from the dead? You do it where nobody was around to see it, Right? You'll go move to the farthest place you possibly can. We're like, we're in India. And we're like, hey, this guy rose from the dead. I swear. Where did it happen? In Jerusalem, several thousand miles away. No. The start of the Christian movement began in the very city they claimed that Jesus rose and was crucified and rose in. You know how you stop that? You just pull the body out and you toss it down. You say, there's the body. What do you explain? Movement's over. Kill them. That's how that ends. But that's not what happened. Both people sat there and said, we don't got a body. We've got different stories, but we don't have a body. The tomb was empty. It's clearly what we can say and we can know. And so as we begin to dive into the third evidence, then we see that the disciples, and this is important, believe they met with Jesus alive. 
Notice we're not saying, hey, the disciples met with Jesus alive. No, we're saying that they actually believed it. All the scholars, the majority of scholars, in fact, there's very few that don't believe this, believe that they believed they saw Jesus. They, they, they say, yes, the disciples think they saw Jesus alive. That's what's their story. That's what they said. It's important because now you have these guys who said, this is what I believe. This is what I think happened. I saw him dead. We knew he was buried. And then I had breakfast with him on Sunday morning. How do you do that? And they believed this. You say, how do you know they believed this? How do you know it wasn't some story that built up over years and years and years? When my children were younger, um, my older two were about four and five. We would have over uh, their cousins who were around the same ages. And I would do a little Bible study. And uh, one of the things I would do during that Bible study, I would write these little theology songs for them. I want to share one with you right now. Let's teach you some theology. You guys ready? Here's a simple one. And it is really easy. It goes, God is one. Now your turn. God is one and three persons, three persons, Father, Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here we go. God is one and three persons, three persons, Father, Son, Father, and Holy Spirit, and Holy Spirit. Give yourself a hand. Good job, you guys. You are the choir of second service. You're thinking, that's so kids, still children's church. No, no, no. That's what they did with adults in the first century. Because they were giving you a catechism. They're giving you something pithy and simple. You're going to walk away going, mm-hmm, and you're going to be like, nah, get that out of my head. Good. You know the Trinity now. So the point is simply that the catechism was spoken in a manner that was simple, pithy, and quick to grasp. And a young man who was, who was um, born in a, in a certain city had come to hate the church, and next thing he knows, he's become converted. He believes that Jesus is risen from the dead. And after finding his way into Jerusalem, he actually meets the, Jeru- the head of the Jerusalem church, Peter and James and these guys, and as he's meeting with them, they give him a simple, quick catechism like that. The reason we know this story is because the person that that happened to his name was Paul. And Paul ends up taking that catechism and inserting it in one of his letters. And it is considered the oldest piece of all of the New Testament. In fact, which we're going to look at right now in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is what he says. He takes that little pithy catechism, which is likely have been written two to three years after Jesus has been crucified. I mean, this is super close. There's not enough time for mythology to build up. And this is what it says. For I delivered to you, Paul says, of first importance, what I also received. So he didn't make it up. This is, what, this is the catechism. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And that would be it. Now he adds on his points here to emphasize. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, you can test this if you want. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And what he gets into here then is the simple fact that, yes, here's this, here's this catechism that's so early, it has to be written by these original guys. And what they say is this, that he first appeared to Cephas, that is Peter the apostle. He says, I saw him. Then the 12 all say, yeah, we saw him. We saw him dead. We saw him buried. And then I had to go pick, put, put my fingers in where the spear was and put my fingers in where the thing was because I didn't want to listen in his scars. I mean, then, we had, then we ate some fish together. I can't tell you, but I know he was there. I saw him. 
the 12, then 500. How do you explain 500 people? You could go up to these 500 who saw Jesus alive, knew he was dead, knew he was buried, and they go, there he is, he's teaching us. How do you explain 500 people saying that guy's alive? These people believed that they had met with Jesus after his death. They believed it so wholeheartedly, one of the fi- it leads to the final evidence, which is basically that the disciples' lives were un- just utterly changed, transformed. They go from Peter, who's denying Jesus and running away, crying about it, to standing in front of an entire million-person crowd in Jerusalem, shouting about how he's risen from the dead, and that the leaders, these guys, who he was earlier afraid of, have killed him. Bold as a lion, John, who's sitting there just watching, helpless, doesn't know what to do, winds up going out and spreading that message everywhere he can. You have disciples who are spread out, scared, or gathered together, afraid of the Romans, now standing up and preaching this wherever they go. Though they're thrown in jail, though they're beaten, or whatever they find themselves in, they're boldly transformed. Let alone, you have Paul's story. Paul was the original terrorist of the church. The guy was... Legally bound and allowed to find Christian churches, arrest them, drag them into the Sanhedrin, have them then killed and, or throw, at least thrown into jail. And he relished this. He was zealous about it until something happened where suddenly he was the missionary of missionaries, spreading the message even to the Gentiles who he had hated as he grew up as a youth. And here he is. This man who is spreading the message that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and is the Lord and the kingdom of God has come. What happened except that he said this, I saw him. He came to me as one untimely born. On the road to a city called Damascus where he was going to arrest a church and have him thrown in jail, Jesus appeared to him, blinded him, and called him, and he had to turn. It was an impossible situation for him to explain except that he had met with Jesus. That's pretty amazing. I think James is crazier. This man, James, is an interesting character. He was the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? You're going to get a chance with the young Messiah. I know that movie's coming out. Who knows what that looks like? But I, I just imagine, you know, they're sitting there in the bathtub and, and she's walking around on the water. Sit down, sit down. You know, James is getting mad. He starts splashing Jesus and Jesus just calms the wave every time it gets to him. Mess on the floor. Mary is in here, and James is sitting there going, doo, doo, doo. He's like, What is this mess? Well, who broke the pot? Well, Jesus did it. Jesus, did you break this pot? No. James, how can you possibly lie to me? Why do you believe him? He's the Son of God. I always have to believe him. You know, it'd just be so annoying. It's being facetious, but the reality is simple. Here is a young man who grew up, and his brother looked like the favored one, though they didn't know who the dad was, and he was always suspicious. And this guy, suddenly, they're, they're growing up under Jesus, and Jesus does something you just don't do. Dad dies. He's, you're supposed to take over as the oldest son to ensure the family has money, and you're supposed to keep the carpentry business going and get out there. And what does he do? At the age of 30, he gets up and walks out when the family needs him the most to go proclaim he's a rabbi. Well, who trained you? Why, you, you, you sit around and read your Bibles and go to, the, go to the synagogue. I do the same thing. Does it make you a rabbi? Get back here. You're crazy. Sees him doing things and proclaiming himself to be the son of God. I mean, here's James and he's going, you're nuts. In fact, what we see is that it says that his brothers didn't even believe in him. 
You can understand why. Because then he takes it all the way to the point where this, he's a sham. He's claiming his Messiah. He gets crucified, which shames and curses the family name. And now James is probably more bitter than ever. He's got a shamed name. He's known as the brother of this false Messiah. He finds himself in disgust of this man. And yet you turn the page and he's now top, of the do- top dog in the Jerusalem church writes a book that we know as the book of James. In fact, is so honored and loved in Jerusalem when he is thrown off the roof of the temple and for proclaiming his brother is the son of God and resurrected from the dead, Jerusalem mourns because he was such a just and upright man. How do you go from my brother's crazy to my brother's God? My brother is a nut to my brother is king. Except that it told us in the book of 1 Corinthians And then he appeared to James. Sibling rivalries are not easily overcome, especially when they're in the level of godhood. And yet suddenly this man is proclaiming his brother, oh, that's just so he could get all the wealth and, you know, all the women and all this stuff. Okay, that's nice, but guess what? He preached against getting women. He preached, gave away his wealth, and he never had any power. Very American reasons to do these things, but not Jewish reasons. Because everything he proclaimed made him ugly in the eyes of his Jewish brothers. What switches you except the resurrection, the life's changed, and yet then these guys each go to their death proclaiming that Jesus has risen from the dead. Oh yeah, people die for what they believe all the time. No, no, listen to me. I'm not saying that they died for something they believed because somebody told them. No, these guys died for what they witnessed. The word witness in the Greek is the word martureo, the martyr. The reason the term martyr is associated with a believer dying is because the apostles died for what they saw and testified to as truth, not because they believed something. Martyr is best associated and attached to somebody dying for what they know is true because they experienced it, not because they want to claim something is true. Because, hey, I've grown up. This is my culture. It's the best. We've all seen torture, film, torture situations in film and stuff like that. And we all know they're based on real things. Look, if you are tortured, you crack. You tell the truth. None of these men did. All of them said Jesus rose from the dead. All of them believed it. They held to it even to their torturous deaths like being crucified upside down, disemboweled while crucified, boiled in oil, you name it, these guys went through horrible tortures and the only one who survived was John. What makes you that motivated? What switches the light on like that except something where he was dead, he was buried and I had breakfast with him on Sunday? The evidence is so strong, so clear, so compelling. If you're not a believer, you have to wrestle with this. There's no ignoring it. There's no walking out of here this morning going, I'm going to put my head in the sand and be an ostrich. There's no, I got this figured out. Because guess what? I know some of you guys know there's other stories that, that explain those four things. Which one? Jesus swooned. He didn't die on the cross. He just like fainted. Well, that'd be interesting. You ever thought through that? And then, you know, Sunday morning comes, he's been wrapped in some very strong cloth. 
that has kind of had a chance for three days to kind of solidify around his body. And in his crucified wrists and feet and his filleted back from the flogging, he manages to break open and, and, and what? Hobble into a room where his guys are after he finds them saying, I'm resurrected. That doesn't look like a resurrected Jesus to me. I think these guys are smarter than that. Swoon theory has not been held to because of those problems. It doesn't explain that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Oh, it was a conspiracy, man. That's how he died and was buried, and they stole the body away. Well, how does Paul end up joining that conspiracy? How is James reasonably convinced when they were against what they believed was a conspiracy originally? Really good preaching? James grew up with the dude, thought he was crazy. Conspiracies don't work like that. Okay, okay, fine. They were a mushroom cult, and they sat around smoking shrooms together and had hallucinations. Literally a doctoral dissertation out of some of our greatest universities on the East Coast. And literally, they, there's people who claim that that's what, no, you can't have mass hallucinations. You can't have that kind of a situation going on. It is an individual, what's going on in your mind is only going on in your mind. The reality is that we've ran out of so many options. You know what the common answer is today? It was aliens, man. Dead serious. And when we have to find an answer off, off our earth to explain these evidences, maybe we should just realize the supernatural has occurred and God has done what he said he would do, that there has been an event in which suddenly God is speaking to us clearly in the sign of Jonah that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. What does this mean for you as Christians? What does this call you to? It means you don't have to be ashamed when you get up. And guys, we're offering the opportunity to get out there to invite your neighbors with these various cards and these, these door hangers because you're not going out to offer an opinion. You're not going out to offer the new self-help book. You're not going out to offer 50 ways to feel good about yourself. No, you are going out to offer the resurrected, risen Lord of all the world who has conquered sin, death, and given you an opportunity to have a relationship with God and be at peace with God, to have a purpose for your life and to enter into eternity with him forever and not suffer the judgment of condemnation in hell. This is the truth that comes and the sign of what occurs in the resurrection. It should embolden you and not cause you to be scared. It's not being offended. It's not being scared. Guys, it's just the truth. And with these evidences, you have the opportunity to walk people through the reality of the truth of Christianity. It is not opinion. It is fact that must be dealt with. And we need to let our friends, our families, and our neighbors have the opportunity to look at the evidence and deal with it. Amen? Amen? And that's my challenge to you this morning, that we would do just that and see them here at Easter to begin to walk in that kingdom of God. Let's bow our heads together. God, we pray that you would indeed begin to move in our hearts, enable us to be men and women of boldness, knowing for sure that you have given us not just the opportunity, but the truth to walk with you. And bring others to know you. God, help us to proclaim that kingdom, to invite them in, and that you would be celebrated in this place as the risen Lord. Use us, we pray. Open the hearts of our friends. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand up? Let's praise our God.